0: International arbitration.
1: You're listening to the news on RTHK.
2: Europe is on its back. Now it's really impacting everything.
1: Economic efficiencies, which means some more job opportunities.
0: More stable investment has been the preferred as clause. Money for nothing.
1: Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me Renita Malhotra Hora. Chinese brokerage valuations climb to their 2010 high as stocks rally, the US dollar extends gains after a November payrolls rise, and with China stocks in the spotlight, China data is likely to dominate the markets this week. We kick off Money for Nothing this morning with a look at the US jobs report. Leading that discussion is Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent in Washington We'll also take a look at the changing dynamics of the international energy markets and in particular what the dramatic uh, easing in crude oil prices means for the world economy. Then we'll talk with journalists Francis Moriarty and Joyce Howe about the relaunch of the 19th Human Rights Press Awards. And along with us in the studio for the full half hour as guest host is Alex Wong of Ample Capital. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. So lot's going on this week, right, with China numbers coming up. Let's uh, take a look at uh, the top stories for today. China's brokerage valuations have surged to their highest level in more than four years as Shanghai's surging stock market improves prospects for trading revenue. The Bloomberg Intelligence China-A-Share Institutional Brokerage Index tracks CITIC Securities and 21 of its peers. The index climbed 55% in the last two weeks, pushing its valuation to four percent three times its book value. That's the highest since May 2010. So, Alex, are brokerages turning out to be the winners in this rally?
3: Oh, yes, of course. Because the um, turnover in the whole market in the, in, in China had uh, surprisingly uh, broken the world record. So um, that, that's why we are seeing a very strong rally in brokerages because um brokerages uh, is a business which had very high operating, operating leverage. So uh, higher turnover means um, uh, profit could go much higher uh, in this environment.
1: Now, there's all sorts of uh, China data that is due out this week. I think we've got trade data today. We've got consumer price inflation expected on Wednesday. These are all numbers for November. Mm. Uh, What are you expecting?
3: Oh, I think uh, we would still have some weak data. Last week, we got a um, weak PMI, and then um, the market dipped a little bit uh, on Monday. But uh, it recover later on because um, right now the market expects uh, further uh, favorable policy uh, following those weak data, So, we, which means uh, weak data probably may not be a problem for China in the meantime.
1: Favorable policy meaning further rate cuts. Yeah, right, yes. Okay, so weak data is not going to impact the markets. Are we going to continue to see a surge or have we plateaued?
3: Oh, I think uh, in Asia, probably we would enter into a phase of a very volatile consolidation. Um, on last Friday, actually, we saw a very um, uh, volatile movement during the day. Uh, we we may see some more um, uh, choppy trading, but uh, the overall sentiment is so bullish that uh, probably we would see further rise uh, later on. And I think uh, this week, probably Hong Kong would pick up. I think Hong Kong probably would catch up uh, with the strength in China.
1: Why will Hong Kong pick up this
3: week? Uh, because uh, last week uh, we saw some interest in uh, mainland uh, payers in Hong Kong finally. Uh, on Friday we saw some surge in the uh, using of the quota in Hong Kong stocks. And uh, the ex shares actually are trading at a much uh, uh, lower valuation than the Asia counterpart now. So that, that means that people would find Hong Kong a little bit uh, cheaper. And then the launch of uh, ETF. Hong Kong stock ETF in China would help retail investors to tap to in the Hong Kong market through those ETFs. I think uh, that means that eventually Hong Kong uh, would catch up with China.
1: So you think maybe then it's time to go holiday shopping in Hong Kong? Yeah, instead
3: of China, yes.
1: Instead of China. Yeah,
3: right, yes. Hong Kong is a a better place to invest right now.
1: All right, good to know. Thank you, Alex. Um, Let's switch gears to the US uh, for a second, where the jobs report has been the talk of the weekend. Last month, America's businesses created more than 300,000 jobs.
0: Our businesses have now created 10.9 million jobs over the past 57 months in a row. And that's the longest streak of private sector job growth on record. I usually don't overreact to the report, but this is one of those wow reports. And it really caps a very good year, probably the best year since the 1990s in terms of job growth. And it looks like we are seeing signs that, that wages are growing, and I think that's really good for the economy overall.
1: So that was President Obama initially, followed by Alan Kruger, who is an economics professor at Princeton University. But not everyone thinks it'll matter too much to the overall picture. Here's Diane Swank, who is the chief economist at Mesero Financial Holdings. I think it's an aberration.
4: We have seen a move up. That's the good news. The bad news is I don't think it is sustained. I would love to see it sustained, and I would love to be wrong on that. Um, I do think that some of these gains are, as I said, the Affordable Care Act and not necessarily in reaction, you know, splitting jobs. Yeah. That's not the best reason to create jobs. It does create jobs, but not the best reason. Now you have to have two jobs instead of one. On the other side of it, the broad-based nature of the gains suggests that we are at some kind of a pivotal point. Where we're starting to see some underlying strength in the economy where we really could begin to heal.
1: And Alice Rivlin, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. It's consistent
4: with the pattern that we've seen uh, over quite a long time now. Uh, the, we knew the economy was creating more jobs, uh, uh, over 200,000 uh, quite steadily, but 300,000 uh... that's a good blip up i don't think this means much for the federal reserve it confirms what they knew uh... the jobs are growing but it's also true that wages have been lagging we haven't seen inflation and uh... we still have quite a lot of people who uh... would like to be working more hours than they are uh... so it uh... doesn't change the picture the fed knew it was facing
1: and how will it affect uh, Fed policy? Here, let's ask Mohammed El-Aryan of Allianz.
0: I think it changes the perceptions of the market. So the market was starting to think, well, maybe that won't lift rates until maybe in 2016. I think that we're looking at the summer of 2015 as the most likely time okay. that the Fed will start raising. All
1: right, let's bring in Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, who joins us now from Washington. Good morning, Barry.
0: Good morning, Renita. Good morning, Alex.
1: So, Barry, what do you make of the U.S. jobs report?
0: Well, I like what Alice Rivlin says. I think that uh, this probably is a blip, but uh, this comes on the string of 200,000 jobs being created each month for quite a long period of time. So it's certainly good news. And given all the bad news over the last five years in this country, I, I think it's rather nice to hear some euphoria. I think it does augur well, Renita, for the Christmas season. I think people are going to use the money they're saving on lower gasoline prices to buy more. And I think the important thing is that both consumer and business confidence is increasing.
1: So this is a good point that you bring up uh, about the lower oil prices and the Christmas season. Uh, oil prices, on one hand, uh, you know, are, are, are very good for the consumer because they're lower. And as you say, it allows them to spend more money. But on the other side of the equation, you have these central banks around the world that are trying their best to fight deflation. How do you reconcile the two?
0: Well, that is an important point. I mean, the dollar has really strengthened against virtually everything. It's gone up against the Euro, it's way up against the Yen, it's way up against the Australian dollar. I think that uh, this can't go on indefinitely. The Japanese have got a set of problems that I don't think the Americans care about, but I think, well, I I don't want to sound cynical. Uh, Obviously we care. It's just that uh, we can't do anything about it. That's a Japanese problem. So I think that uh, the central bank is aware that United States interest rate policy affects the world. They know that. But they have communicated clearly, Randita, that they can't make that part of their policy prescription. They can't be guided by what's happening elsewhere. Their responsibility is to create jobs and to promote economic stability here at home. So I don't think it's going to be that much of a contradiction or a dilemma.
1: Alex, what do you think? What do you think of Barry's uh, wisdom about what's coming out of the U.S.?
3: Oh, yes. I think uh, we probably would see some more strength in the U.S. dollar, and I agree that uh, central banks would care about the local problems. Japan just announced the set of weak uh, data and probably we would see further um, uh, weakness in the, in, the, in, in the end, and then probably they would continue to do something despite uh, the sign that uh, U.S. may need to rate, raise the rates uh, much earlier than it's expected.
1: So uh, Japan is expecting its its revised third quarter GDP is due out today, and this may improve from earlier estimates. Could this change things, Alex?
3: Uh, no, I think uh, really uh, they, they probably still need to... Uh, uh, stimulate the economy, I think uh, they probably would would, would still be weak, I think.
1: Barry, would you say that might make uh, uh, America care more, perhaps, about what's (laughs) happening in Japan?
0: Uh, Well, look, uh, I think everyone who is a friend of Japan wants that economy to grow and wants the Abe reforms to succeed. I don't think uh, data that's going to happen today in Japan is going to make that much difference. I think what we've really got to see ultimately over the next year or so, and I know there's an election coming up there, is we've got to see the Japanese business community and the consumer begin to believe in their country and in their economy that they can compete in that part of the world, they can compete against China, and they've got to act as if they're They're strong and uh, looking to the
1: future. All right, Barry, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, joining us from Washington. Well, falling oil prices have certainly created a central banking conundrum, but are they a catalyst for M&A deals? Here is Bobby Tudor, the chief executive officer of Tudor Pickering Holt & Company.
5: The closely watched Center Data Index, which measures prices per square foot in the secondary market,
1: Okay, a uh, little bit uh, uh, off on the audio there. No worries. Um, Alex, do you expect a pickup in mergers and acquisitions activity in the oil and energy sector as a result of these falling oil prices?
3: Uh, not so fast. I think uh, people need to see uh, what Saudi would do, I think. Uh, they, they, right now, oil prices actually depends a lot on the attitude of uh, Saudi. So um, uh, if they do... To cut the production, then probably oil would uh, recover quite uh, fast. But I think uh, in the meantime, uh, people would take a wait and see attitude because uh, the oil prices actually had not stabilized yet, and then uh, the downside could be could still have uh, a, a lot. Uh, if everything uh, goes on like right now because us production would go further into uh 2015 and then um and Saudi looks like uh, they are happy with the uh, lower prices right now so uh i think mna property would not uh, would not would not be too fast right now
1: Okay. well, as the uh, as the price of oil continues to dive, there are continuing discussions trying to delve into its effects on world economies. From Washington, the Voice of America's Ira Melman spoke with Tom Closer, who is the global head of energy analysis at the U.S.-based Oil Price Information Service.
2: We are looking at one of the most dramatic sort of revaluations of oil prices uh, that we've seen since the great financial unwinding and the great recession of 2008 and nine. Is this all good news for economies and markets, uh, especially, let's say, in Asia? Certainly for the emerging economies in in Asia, uh, it's very welcome news, because we're looking at prices that, uh, uh, again, are are down by more than a third from where they were in June. And when when you look at some of the products that kind of fuel uh, the expansion and the movement from sort of economies of sustenance into something approaching the the middle class, uh, you're very dependent on things like jet fuel and gasoline and diesel fuel uh, to get those economies going. And to a certain extent, the prices that we saw from 2011 to 2013 hamstrung some of the development in developing countries. How do you see the future? How long is this going to go on? Well, I think we're dealing with chapters here. And and a new chapter was uh, dawned essentially when OPEC met, and they did uh, relatively nothing except acknowledge that they have a problem and put off uh, any means of solving that problem for many months. It was as though the world suddenly had an epiphany that oil shale is real and that the United States is contributing 4 million barrels a day more oil because of the shale than we were uh, four or five years ago. So I, I think this sets up uh, the next OPEC meeting, which is supposed to be June, but perhaps might be earlier, as really the, the key pivot point uh, if they meet again and they decide that they're going to seek market share where every individual producer just sells as much oil as they can, then we're looking at uh, really a a complete reappraisal of petroleum dynamics. And we are looking at something where we could see less than $50 for a period of time, but we could also see some of the economies that were beneficiaries of higher oil prices, uh, like the United States and Canada, suffer a little bit as well. Where do you think oil prices will be a year from now? A year from now, uh, I think that probably we're going to be looking at prices between $50 and $70 a barrel. Uh, I think there will be overreactions in between where the market could go as low as $35 or $45 a barrel uh, and overreactions to the upside. But we lived in a world for Really, almost four years where the bottom of the market globally was $90 a barrel. I think that $90 number, number is uh, an unreachable ceiling uh, as far ahead as one cares to look, unless there's just a tremendous conflagration in the Strait of Hormuz or in that part of the world. And what do you see this doing to world markets? Uh, I think, you know, it's, it, it has different impacts on different markets. I, I think for some of the emerging economies, it's it's a bit of a catalyst, and it will propel some future growth. I think it clearly hurts uh, Russia. Uh, North America is probably uh, on the fence, uh, but the market will overreact. You know, the oil markets are nothing if not a series of overreaction followed by uh, You know, the the exact opposite overreaction. So uh, don't sort of toss out some numbers as, as being out of the realm of possibility. Almost all numbers are possible now.
1: That was, uh, Voice of America's Ira Melman talking with Tom Closer, the global head of energy analysis at the US-based Oil Price Information Service. Well, a quick look at the numbers before we move on to the next segment. Uh, the Nikkei is up half a percent to 18,000. Australia's ASX index is up, uh, four-fifths of a percent to 5,355 and Seoul's Kospi is up 0.1% to 1,988. In currencies, one euro will buy you 1.22 US dollars. The US dollar is currently trading at 121 yen and one pound sterling is currently valued at 12 Hong Kong dollars. Brent crude oil is currently at 67 dollars and 85 cents per barrel and gold is at 1,189 dollars and 70 The time is now 8.20, and we'll be back to talk about the 19th Human Rights Press Awards. That's right after this message.
4: How are policies formulated? How should the government allocate its resources in the budget?
0: Boost the economy.
3: Meet housing needs.
0: Care for the elderly. Or should we focus on education, healthcare, and the environment? Make
4: your voice heard. Share your views on the Policy Address and Budget Consultation website at www.policyaddress.gov.hk or call our hotline 2810 3768.
1: The 19th Human Rights Press Awards opened for submission last week. The awards are considered the most prominent rights-related prizes of their kind in this region. And uh, they will honor journalistic works published or broadcast during the 2014 calendar year. Joining us to uh, talk uh, more about this are... uh, Francis Moriarty and uh, Joyce Lau, both journalists who are uh, responsible for coordinating the Human Rights Press Awards launch. Good morning, Francis. Good morning, Renita. And good morning, Joyce. Good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning on Money for Nothing. So it's very exciting news uh, that uh, the awards are open for submission. But even more exciting, perhaps than that, is the fact that they are relaunched. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Francis?
5: Well, uh, I'll take that one then. I think one of the questions people listening to the show might ask is, is why is this in a business segment? And I think that that's important because, first of all, human rights affects everybody. And secondly, because uh, if you look carefully at, at headlines and some of the stories that get tucked away in the newspapers and, and online, you'll you'll see that a lot of the people who are find themselves in difficulty in certain countries, and, and, and China being one of them, are business people. And there are Uh, hundreds of cases uh, on average a year of people from Hong Kong going to the mainland and finding themselves in what's called uh, economic difficulties or or having uh, incarcerated for alleged economic reasons. Uh, These are not often publicized. People don't want them to be known, uh, but business people are affected so it's not just journalists uh, it's not just people who are protesting it's all of us who are in some way affected by this so we've tried to call attention to this we began working on the human rights press awards 20 years ago this year as you say correctly will be our 19th awards and and that's why we're we're on this segment and that's why we're letting people know uh, that we're out there and uh, appealing for support, and uh, also letting people know that uh, according to our rules, um, anybody in the public who sees something that they think is a, is a strong human rights story rather than just simply a human interest story, uh, can can submit them, if they wish, uh, to the awards. Uh, but I'll stop there, and maybe Joyce has something to add.
1: Yeah, uh, Joyce, I just wanted to ask, I mean, you know, touching on Francis's point here that, you know, many business people are incarcerated. Can you give us some examples of, you know, stories perhaps that have focused on, on this kind of topic? Um,
4: amongst our winners last year, there were some amazing photographs from um, textile factories and and the conditions inside them. So certainly human rights and um, business practices are are very closely linked. Um, In terms of our relaunch, um, last week we we launched a website which we didn't have uh, before and we also launched a fundraising drive. And so we're actually working more closely with the business community because people have come forward out of Hong Kong's business communities to support us. Um, So that's very important. That's a big difference um, from past years.
1: Joyce, what would you say uh, is the value for the business community to support the awards? What's in it for them? I I think that
4: having a free flow of information is very important, um, regardless of what the topic is. Um, When people think of human rights, they often think of a kind of a narrow, kind of like distance in politics, which of course are important, but we we accept entries about all sorts of rights, whether they are labor rights or gender rights, and these are actually interesting to the business community, and and in many ways, these issues impact economies.
5: One of the things we've noticed, Renita, which is interesting, is that over the years, people have been Uh, At first, it was a slow drip-drab, and then it was a trickle, and now it's a steady stream of stories that relate to the environment. And and people have a sense, although if you look in the International Declaration of Human Rights, you won't see the right to a clean environment specifically listed. There are other things that would be the elements of that there. And and people are now, the assumption mentally for a lot of people is that people of all types have a right to to a clean environment and when one of the things that's interesting about the occupy central which is still going occupy admiralty as it is at this point still going on is that people have discovered that they can walk Um, And they're rediscovering the joy of walking, the pleasure of walking and experiencing clean air and hearing birds sing. So people are getting the idea even from Occupy Central. Wait a minute. Things could be a different way. And we have a right to that as an environment. So uh, that's one of the ways that that through the Human Rights Press Awards, we track changes in in public sentiment, Not, not necessarily intentionally. It just happens. And you can see that that is the case.
1: Certainly, as journalists, I mean, we, we definitely uh, hold the view that democracy plus work ethic is equal to prosperity. Alex, I'd like to throw this out to you. Yes. Um, do you think, uh, you know, something like the Human Rights Press Awards are, are important indeed for the business community, as Francis and Joyce suggest?
3: Of course, yes. Uh, of course, we care about the human rights issue as well. And uh, like uh, Francis has said, uh, we... we I think uh, probably people in China, especially, um, I'm uh, more care about I'm more caring about the clean environment because in Beijing, in Tianjin, everywhere actually you got a uh, smoke. Uh, and that was a very big problem, and I, I think uh, people also care about the labor practices in, in everywhere.
5: Yeah, rule of law is also right. extremely important to businesses, right. and that and that falls under the the rubric as well.
1: But you think it actually makes a difference? It's not a case of, all oh, right, business as usual. I do need to, uh, you know, have the labor for my factory, so let me continue doing whatever it is I've been doing.
3: Oh but uh, I think uh, that that relates to the brand names and 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 that is a and very high uh, intangible asset. So I I don't I don't think uh, that, that 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 would not matter. Yeah.
1: Joyce you were going to say something? Um uh,
4: we almost never get submissions from mainland China. Um, but we did get a submission from a journalist working for CCTV last year and she won a merit prize for coverage of water pollution and it was striking because it showed on, you know, the state news media. So I think that these issues are, are actually very close. Um, certainly business people in China watch state media, and the fact that they decided to highlight water pollution um, was, was very important to us.
5: We also had an award a few years ago. to went to a Xinhua photographer in Bangladesh uh, who was uh, photographing uh, working conditions and, and uh uh social conditions in 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 that country so um we we get submissions and this year we're widening out a bit um, our region of, of, interest, it's open to anybody who's a Hong Kong journalist or who's a correspondent based in Asia. It doesn't matter where their, their home organization is. They're based in Asia and Asia for us is, 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 is Pakistan, Afghanistan, Mongolia to Japan, down to Indonesia and back again. And if you happen to work in Australia or the South Pacific and you do a story that's sort of a cross hemispheric where it touches on that, that area that I just described, um, that would also be eligible and that's a change this year to open it up uh, even. Even further. So they're not only the most prestigious awards that are rights related in Asia, which they certainly are, they're the most prestigious journalism awards uh, in Asia, full stop.
1: All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Francis Moriarty and Joyce Lau. Both are journalists, uh, and they were here to talk about the 19th Human Rights Press Awards launch. A quick look at the numbers before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is currently up half a percent to 18,000. And eighteen, Australia's ASX index also up tenths of a percent to five thousand three hundred and fifty one, and Seoul's cosby is up uh, uh, just slightly to one thousand nine hundred and eighty seven. Alex, uh, before mm. we wrap up, uh, uh, anything else that we should be looking out for this week aside from what we've already talked about?
3: I think uh, focus is uh, on China. Uh, we we probably will look out uh, what the regulators have said about the high leverage uh, trading in China. I think that probably would cause some uh, volatility.
1: All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning as guest host. That is Alex Wong of Ample Capital. And I'm Renita Malhotra Hora, closing up the show uh, this morning. A quick look at the weather before we uh, move on. It'll be mainly cloudy with one or two light rain patches at first and cool in the morning with sunny periods during the day. The temperature right now is 16 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 75%. Now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. Typhoon Hagapit has brought high winds and heavy rain to the Philippines, but hasn't resulted in the damage or casualties many had feared. At least three people have been killed so far. But the evacuation of a million people ahead of the storm meant the death toll was nothing like that of Typhoon Haiyan, which killed at least 7,000 people just over a year ago. Speaking from Manila, journalist Alan Robles told RTHK this morning that the slow-moving typhoon was expected to pass the city tonight.
0: The typhoon is moving at the stately 10 kilometers per hour but this slow speed actually promises more catastrophe. The longer Hagopit lingers, the more intense the rainfall it dumps causing floods and landslides because the typhoon has a diameter of 500 kilometers. Now the thing we're worried about is that in 2009, intense rains brought by typhoon Ketsana killed more than 700 people These casualties included residents in Manila, parts of which were submerged because of unprecedented torrential rains. There's a danger this might happen
1: Syria has accused Israel of carrying out two airstrikes near the Syrian capital Damascus. The BBC's Jim Muir reports.
3: The only solid word is coming from the Syrian authorities who are saying through a statement, and a very official statement read out on their state media from the, the command of the Syrian armed forces, saying that during the afternoon Israeli jets carried out what they called blatant aggressions in on two areas, one close to Damascus International Airport and the other at Dimas, which is a town over near the Syrian border with Lebanon.